Welcome back to another Evening Under Lamplight podcast with Robert Louis Abrahamson as we continue up through Dante's Paradiso. If perhaps we thought Cantos 5 and 6 were difficult, Canto 7 gives us no relief. It too is full of scholastic reasoning, complicated here by some views that simply don't sit well for us today. Well, that's just a challenge we'll have to meet. Dante had warned us in Canto 1 that if we wanted an easy ride, we should just turn around and go home. We've chosen to keep going, and so we shall. And I'll try to do my part to help clarify what's going on. We've been paying attention to the way the cantos lately have been opening in unexpected ways, and here too it's an unusual, though not unique, opening with a hymn, what's sometimes called a macaronic, that is, combining two different languages, here Latin and Hebrew, appropriate for this theme of conjoining we've been watching. Latin and Hebrew join together to create a unified verse, yet each word also remaining individual. Hosanna Sanctus Deus Sabaoth, super illustrans claritata tua, felices ignes orum malakoth. Mostly Latin, but three essential words in Hebrew, Hosanna, help or praise, Sabaoth, hosts or armies, and Malakoth, kingdoms, though actually Dante was mistaken, it should be Mamalakoth. Praise, holy God of hosts, shining down with your brightness on the joyful fires of these nations. Unlike in other places, this is a hymn created by Dante, not one taken from the liturgy. By the way, what nations are being talked about here? Well, all the lands Justinian has been speaking about in the previous canto, because this hymn follows on as a kind of conclusion to the previous canto, with its discourse on the history of the empire, showing us how the movement of history can be seen as God's handiwork, conjoined with human endeavor, hence the super-illumination of these nations under empire. It's Justinian who sings this, linking, as we've been seeing, the previous canto with this canto, as though he had so much to say that he wasn't content with simply taking up the whole of Canto Six, but bubbles over into the first three lines of Canto Seven. He is shining in a double light, or to be faithful to Dante's made-up word here, he is intuned, or dupled. Two different aspects of him in the one light, perhaps his aspects as emperor and lawgiver, or some other pair of attributes, Dante leaves it to us. And he not only sings this hymn, he dances it, and so do all the thousands of other souls there, fading into the distance like sparks, one by one going out. And now it's just Dante and Beatrice again. And again Dante has a question, and again he has doubts about whether to ask it. No, tell her, tell her, he says to himself, and again, tell her, she always soothes my thirst. But he can't bring himself to speak to her because of the great reverence he has for her, which makes him rather bow down his head, almost as if nodding off. But of course Beatrice knows what's going on, and she speaks for him with a smile, Dante says, that would ease even someone who was on fire, someone suffering in hell, perhaps, or on the terrace of lust in purgatory. What follows is Beatrice's long explanation of the role of Christ's incarnation in human flesh. Of course, Dante, through Beatrice, puts this in the terms of Catholic doctrine, or we might say the Catholic mythology, which can seem strange, even offensive, to many people today. 
but as I try to paraphrase Beatrice's argument, I'm going to stick to that doctrinal way of putting it, and then afterwards try to speak of it in different language, closer to home for many of us. Okay? Now, Beatrice first restates Dante's question. Justinian had spoken of Titus's destruction of Jerusalem as a just punishment for a just punishment. In other words, there was a justice in killing Christ, but also a justice in punishing those who justly killed Christ. Is this a contradiction? It sounds like it, but I'll clear this up for you quickly, Beatrice kindly says. We're not surprised by this point to see her explain the Incarnation by moving off in another direction, this time going back to Adam, the man who was not born, or as James Joyce called him, the man without a belly button. He was not able to control his desires, and so went against God's will and damned himself, and through him all the rest of humanity after him. And so, the doctrine says, the human race was afflicted with this diseased fault line, officially known as original sin, the sin coming to us from our origins in the first human being. But then came the Incarnation, the Word of God coming down into human flesh, which, since Adam, had been estranged from God, but now was conjoined with God, Jesus Christ being the archetype conjunction of the divine and the human. This was the salvation of the world, this act of eternal love. Now, look with your deepest penetration at what follows from this, Beatrice says. Uniting divine and human brought the two together as purely as when Adam was first created and before Adam ruined it and lost this unity. All human beings were punished for this disobedience, but Jesus' death on the cross was the supreme punishment because Jesus, perfect man and perfect God, represented the best we are capable of, and so the best of us took on the punishment for human disobedience. It was a just punishment because humanity deserved it. I'll speak in a few minutes in different terms about this punishment, a harsh and not very helpful way of putting it. It may have been a just punishment for a man, and yet because this was also God who was crucified, it was an outrage against divinity. So another paradox, just and right, and also outrageously wrong. And because the crucifixion was an outrage to God, perpetrated, the church said, by the Jews, though it was the Romans who actually crucified the man, therefore the Jews had to be punished for it, and that was effected by the emperor Titus, who destroyed the temple and the city of Jerusalem. So that's where the paradox takes us. Well, the whole situation is a paradox, stemming from the original paradox of conjoining the two different natures of human and divine, first in Adam, then lost, then reunited in Jesus. And so now Beatrice has resolved the paradox that had been puzzling Dante. But she can see, no surprise here, that there's another problem bothering Dante. It's interesting that on this planet of intellectual back and forth, Beatrice should, in her own speech, recreate Dante's speech. You are saying in yourself, I understand what you're saying, but why did God have to carry out this program of redeeming us by this cruel method? In other words, at this point, we have Dante the poet putting words into the mouth of Beatrice, who is putting words into the mouth of Dante the character in the story, a typically mercurial move. So, now we have to work out the problem that, 
given the fact that humanity had to be punished, why was the crucifixion chosen as the means of ultimate punishment and salvation? It seems that Beatrice is trying to back out of an explanation when she says that the reason for the crucifixion is a divine mystery, hidden from those who do not approach it with sufficient love. Is this a warning to us, the readers, that if we can't follow what she's saying, it's simply that we're not bringing enough love and openness to the issue? But nevertheless, Beatrice says she'll try to explain it, since it's a point that many people want to know about. I suppose then it's up to us, not her or Dante, whether we get it or not. We start this discussion with divine goodness, which always shines forth with eternal beauty. And so anything that is directly created by it, with the stamp of this eternal beauty, will be eternal. That means it won't rot away or die. And the things that come from this eternal beauty are godlike and shine with a holiness like their eternal source. For example, Adam, who shone with that eternal beauty, could have, well, I don't know, come up with a song celebrating the morning, something like that. And because he was still connected with this eternal divine source, that song would also shine with eternal beauty. This is the way things were designed to be. But if just one time there is a break in this unity with the divine, a break that is technically called a sin, then, alas, the whole relationship is broken, and, and that's what happened in the Garden of Eden. There will still remain traces of that original divine, but, of course, much dimmer. So it comes down to a broken relationship, and we're back to the issue of how do you repair a broken relationship, this time a rather more essentially broken relationship. The doctrine says that you have to pay an appropriate penalty, suffer a punishment hard enough to make up for the damage. Well, that's tough love, but the principle behind it, I think, is that if you give up pleasure and suffer pain with a good will, you can show how sorry you are. Now, it's up to God, of course, who, who has two choices. He could just offer a pardon and forgive us all. Or we could offer that sacrifice of pain to show we're sorry and make atonement. Pay careful attention now, Beatrice says at this point, and that's always a sign that we're about to enter something sticky. She's about to take another sidestep here. Considering that second choice of human beings offering up some sacrifice to show they're sorry, well, we, we are all just too limited in our capacities to humble ourselves sufficiently to equal the disobedience at the beginning. It was, after all, much more serious than just taking a bite from a piece of forbidden fruit. So forget about that choice of having humankind offer a sacrifice. Too bad, because to have the sacrifice come from the one who had committed the offense is much more pleasing than just having the offended person grant pardon. But wait, there was a way God could get around this and actually accomplish both choices at once. By incarnating himself into human form, then there would be a human being worthy enough, humble enough, obedient enough to offer a sacrifice appropriate to outweighing the offense. If the most perfect human being offered himself, that would restore the balance and the relationship. And so, although none of us others could even hope to do this, Jesus was the one, given us by God, who could carry out the offering. And so it all falls into place. 
God did the pardoning, and also allowed humanity, in the person of the human Jesus, to offer the recompense, and to restore the relationship to what it had been in the beginning. That's why Jesus was often called the second Adam. Well, there we are. Beatrice has answered the questions. But there's one more point that arose in this discussion that needs further explanation. Again, she articulates Dante's questions. Dante does not speak at all in this canto, except a few words to himself at the beginning, and, if we want to count this, through the mouth of Beatrice. Remember that Beatrice had said that in creating things, the divine goodness instilled an eternal beauty on these things, which means that they don't rot or die. But, but, but obviously the things of this world do rot, decay, disintegrate, die. So how to explain this? Don't worry. Scholastic reasoning has a way to put it right, by distinguishing between what is created immediately by the divine goodness without intermediaries and what is created by secondary forces. Our souls, as well as the angels, are created immediately by God, and it is these things that are eternal. But material things like a bird or a tree or a river or our bodies take their form not directly from God, but, as has been explained in earlier cantos, through the influencing powers of the stars and planets. Remember the way God's creative will is passed down through the prime mover to the next sphere down and then to the next until that creative will is manifested in the vast variety of material beings here on earth. Through this process, the divine goodness is diluted or less intense by the time it gets to earth, and thus all the things created in this way suffer decay, death, or some other change. And here the canto comes to an end as Beatrice finishes her discourse. And this ends that chain of interlocked cantos filled with scholastic reasoning. We can get ready for a new episode in the next canto. The canto opens with the final words of Justinian, sung as a hymn, and then the disappearance of these mercurial souls, back to their place in the Empyrean, now that the show is over. Beatrice's discourse answers three questions. That paradox about a just punishment being justly punished. The question about why the reconciliation between God and humanity had to be made by a painful crucifixion. And finally, why material things decompose. There's not been much drama in these cantos, we may think, and yet almost unnoticed has been the drama between Dante and Beatrice, his hesitancy, her openness, and then, in, in this canto, a, a kind of merging together as his words appear from her mouth. The theme of conjoining in two-ness, as Dante might coin it, reaches a little climax here. In the previous canto, Justinian presented a sweep of secular history, showing God's hand at work in history through the Incarnation. This canto takes us deeper into that incarnation, as though we cannot properly make sense of it or its place in history until we understand the reason for its being. This is all part of that scholastic mind, always intent on aims and purposes of things, seeing how things fit in their proper places. This is admirable, but so easily corruptible, like so many other things. 
In particular, the, the whole scholastic perspective lost its credibility when it became merely a system of arguing over small distinctions and terminology, hammered into schoolchildren, who then grew up with a great distaste for that whole enterprise. What's the use of something that you're just made to memorize and get caned for not getting right? But I think we, who may be in a better position since we did not have that stuff imposed on us, we can see the value in this way of understanding the world. As we've noticed before, the most common word in the Divine Comedy is to see. That's what Dante is chiefly interested in. He goes through hell to see into the nature of sin, through purgatory to see the way we can cleanse ourselves and reform, and now through the heavens to see... to see what? To see the connections between the divine and the human, or we might say in more secular terms, to see what a life lived without ego is like. And seeing things in their right proportions, from a larger perspective, the hope is that we will then order our lives in accordance with this perspective, which will automatically direct our actions in the way of love, that is, in the way of openness, generosity, caring, all these things that go with relationship and community. I think one of the things we have to tackle here is the idea of punishment. In the official account, Adam was disobedient and so had to be punished. We all inherited this inclination to go wrong. Of course we did. That's why our lives and our world are so messed up. And we all have to be punished. So Christ comes as Jesus and takes the punishment for us dying for our sins, as they say. This idea of a vengeful God who wants to punish us bothers a lot of people, people inside the church as well as out. It can lead to a glorification of pain, not to say violence. Is it really what we mean by divine love? As I've done before, I want to shift our perspective so we see it slightly different. In speaking of the souls in hell, I think I mentioned that they are not suffering for their sins, but by their sins. In other words, their behavior, insofar as it is self-centered, and thus in technical terms sinful, the behavior is what causes their pain. It's not inflicted from outside. That's only the fiction, as Dante would say, designated to represent things to us in a way we can grasp. Grasp, but then interpret. And as Beatrice says here, interpret with a penetration infused with love. So can we see the cross not as an instrument of punishment, but an image of the pain and suffering we, we all endure because of our faulty nature or wrongly led lives? We can let go of the image of a nasty, cruel, exacting judge in heaven. The, the cross represents the suffering we face because of the broken relationship. What broken relationship? Well, that between ourselves and what we have been calling the divine community, which includes the relationship with the shining source of that community. We have focused on ourselves instead of on that conjoining of ourselves with others, and this self-centeredness can be excruciatingly painful even when we try to use any number of distractions to dull the pain. But it's not just the cross, of course, but the crucifixion, a painful experience, but one that can be offered up as a gesture of atonement. What is this telling us? 
Forgive me if I seem to be dragging this out too much or making things more confusing than they've been. What we want to ask is, in what way do moments in our lives enact what this represents? That is, to ask how do we bring both humanity and divinity together in our suffering, restoring that unity that is our perfection, our purpose. Or maybe we can ask how can our suffering take place within the community of eternal love, wherever two or three are gathered together in community? I'd better work with an example, though I'm not too confident that I'll get it quite right. We want an example from a quite ordinary experience, a low-key example of these highest things. Let's suppose a friend does not reply to my email, and my ego feels hurt and resentful. Impelled by this ego desire, I pull away from my friend. What's the matter with him? Does he think I'm not good enough to write to? He's always been like that, I know. I'm going to write to him again and tell him what I think of him. Well, here I am, breaking the relationship, that, that little community of the two of us. I have chosen to go my own ego-centered way instead of the way of love, which would have me consider that maybe the friend is busy at the moment, or maybe my email never even got there, or got lost in a batch of other email in his inbox. My choice of ego rather than love is an act represented in the mythology by Adam's disobedience, and my pained, self-absorbed sulkiness is represented by the expulsion from Eden. This pain is, if we want to put it like that, my punishment for having consented to those uncharitable thoughts. So, so how do I heal this, supposing I come to my right mind? Or turning it around, what can my friend do to help restore the friendship? Maybe like this. He can reach out and perhaps suggest that we just meet together, over a meal, on a walk, or something like that. And not just come together, but bring the pain together, his pain and mine, so that we share our suffering honestly and directly in the reality of the present moment. This is our crucifixion moment, when the in-two-ness of us is conjoined in the pain, and out of that comes the new, healed relationship. He has reached out to pardon me, and I have offered up my painful regret. We have both acted in this. Yeah, I know I'm only talking about a little break in a friendship, but I think we need to transpose the universal myths into humble moments that we can find in our own lives. That's the way to make these scholastic distinctions come alive. Now, I, I know I've sort of bypassed one important moment in Beatrice's discourse in this canto, her almost casual presentation of the Jews as the ones guilty of the crucifixion and deserving punishment in its literal sense. You know how this kind of attitude has led to centuries of hostility, violent and prejudiced hostility. It's part of the medieval church's doctrine and its myth, somewhat corrected, somewhat corrected in our time. But we at least know what to think of such views that break the universal community. If we have taken in Beatrice's vision with its penetrating love, we will shift our perspective and rise above Jew and Gentile. We will rejoice, as Justinian said these souls here rejoice, in the diversity coming together in the community. If we've come this far up into the heavens and taken the journey with open eyes, 
we know that the roles we are given in life, Jew or Gentile, male or female, and all the other differences, are dissolved in our deepest relationship where we become to each other only brothers and sisters. After all, Justinian's hymn at the opening of the canto praised God for his light illuminating the blessed fires of all nations. And this image of the Jews as the guilty party is only a fictional representation to explain the paradox. If, if there's a guilty party, it's the Church for promulgating a myth that had such harmful consequences. Well, what more can I say? Like the mercurial souls at the beginning of the canto, I'll just fade away like a spark dying out, now at the end of the podcast. We come next to the planet of Venus, where we'll meet up for the next canto. See you there. <laughs>